Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 15 of the Anno Domini podcast, a podcast dedicated to the supremacy of Christ over all things, including our days, weeks, and months. Join me as we explore how Christ is revealed through the cyclical life of the church calendar year. We'll discover how the calendar once structured culture and how it can again. We'll also discuss practical ways to observe and celebrate these holy days in our quest to glorify God and live the good life in the midst of all the good He has given us. Last week, I said that Pentecost might be the most important day we mark on the church calendar. My reasoning is that only with the coming of the Holy Spirit are those of us who belong to Christ actually given new hearts. Jesus said that we would be born again by the Spirit. The Father sends the Son, the Son atones for the sins of His people, and the Spirit gives them new hearts so they can approach the holiness of the Father. It is this beautiful Trinitarian reality that we celebrate on Holy Trinity Sunday. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, living in perfect harmony, three in one and one in three, the triune Godhead. Trinity Sunday is here. We are now beginning a new time within the church calendar, ordinary time. While the first half of the church year focuses on the life of Jesus, the second half focuses on the life of the church now that the Spirit has come and filled our hearts with love of God and love of His people. This is where we get our idea of things being ordinary and special. The first half of the church calendar year is special because it's all about the life of Christ, His advent, His birth, His revealing to the world, His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension. That is all special. The second half is ordinary, or ordinal, it's numbered, because we, the saints that comprise His bride, the church, We're being transformed day by day, week by week, into a better representation of the bridegroom, of Jesus. So we use the term ordinary because we designate each week with ordinal numbers as it relates to Pentecost. Because Pentecost is for the church, again I'm going to argue, again for the church, the most important day of the year because it's when the church is actually given God to be dwell to dwell inside us. Now, ordinary isn't boring. In fact, without ordinary, you don't have things that are set apart as special. Things are only special if they are set against ordinary things. So this time, this ordinary time that we are now in, That's not to say it's boring or it doesn't matter. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is the time that the church becomes more like Jesus. Not that the times that we celebrate his life, we're not trying to be like Jesus, but this is the time on the church calendar, that cyclical life of the church calendar year, where we emphasize being like Jesus. And so, as I said, we're now living in the time of Pentecost, and therefore... We number our weeks 
as they correspond to the Pentecost Sunday when the Spirit was given to us. In this way, we balance our focus on the life of Christ and the life of Christ's people as they try and become more like Him. So today, Trinity Sunday, is actually the first Sunday after Pentecost. On each episode of the Anno Domini podcast, we try and look at some or all of the readings found in the church lectionary. For those of you who may not know, the lectionary is simply a prepared set of readings that are connected in a germane way to the day or week of the church calendar. Now, this set group of readings um, is germane to the calendar, so therefore, on Trinity Sunday, you can pretty much guess what the ideas are going to be within that reading. But the cool thing about the lectionary is that the church together is reading the same thing on a weekly basis. And this is regardless of personal devotions. Personal devotions, of course, are very, very important, but the lectionary causes the church to all read the same things corporately, to read the same things together. Usually there is an Old Testament reading, a psalm, a gospel passage, and an epistle reading. Now, sometimes you have to really spot the connecting thread that connects these different lectionary readings together. On Trinity Sunday, it's not too difficult to see how they connect. But it's really kind of fun because we have these lectionary readings put together for a reason. They all correspond. And sometimes figuring out why they correspond can be a neat challenge. For Trinity Sunday, the passages are from Genesis chapter 1, all of chapter 1, and then the first four verses of chapter 2, Matthew 28, uh, verses 16 through 20, Psalm 8, if you're reading the Psalms uh, as well, And then Acts chapter 2, a little introductory verse, 14, kind of the first part of verse 14, and then 22 through 36. And I'm actually going to be reading snippets of each of these passages minus the Psalms, the Psalm passage, Psalm 8, and I'm going to highlight why they were chosen for Trinity Sunday. Like I said, it's going to be fairly clear, but looking at them as a whole will be helpful. Let's start with the passage from Genesis. Uh, I'm going to be reading three verses, 26, 27, and 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. As God is creating the world, his creation culminates with the creation of man the image of God. Man is not like the animals. Man is not a species of animals. When God prepares to create man, he refers to himself using a first-person plural pronoun. In fact, he uses two. He uses the the pronoun us and our. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. 
He doesn't use the singular I or my. He doesn't say, let me make man in my own image. He said, let us make man in our own image. This means that God is one God with at least more than one person within the Godhead. If you were just going off of this verse alone, you would say at least there is two or more persons within this Godhead. And we'll see in the next passage that there are in fact three. That next passage is Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christians have been given the task of calling to repentance and discipline all the nations of the earth. There is no nation on earth that doesn't need the love of Jesus. There is no nation on earth that doesn't need the call of the gospel that says, Repent, for the King is here. Jesus says, All authority on, on, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus claimed that for himself. It's not something that is going to come. He has that authority now. And so our call, uh, Jesus calls us to go and to call all these nations to repentance and then to baptize them in a very specific way. We're to baptize them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. And once they've been baptized, we are to teach them how to obey God in the ways he has commanded us. When we obey Christ in this way, he promises to be with us always. But we see very, very clearly here the Trinitarian doctrine of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if it wasn't clear there, we'll see it again in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to be reading verses 32 and 33 and part of 36. This, so again, this is Peter giving um, his sermon. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So in this passage, Peter, who's giving his first sermon on the actual day of Pentecost, this would, you know, go back and listen to last week's if you missed that, that episode, because it's, it's one of the most important days on the church calendar. The Holy Spirit is poured out. These Christians go out and start speaking preaching the gospel to everybody in their native tongues. They're speaking real languages, and that spirit is uniting all nations, all tribes, all tongue, tongues under one banner, and that banner is Christ. So in this passage, Peter, giving his first sermon, declares that Jesus ascended to the right hand of God the Father, where he was given the promised Holy Spirit. And then Jesus does something with that Holy Spirit. He then pours it out upon us. There again, we see the three members of the triune Godhead on display. We also see the love of our one God. 
The Father sends the Son to rescue His people from their sins so that He can pour out His Spirit upon them. This is one God in three persons. This week we're going to be examining a hymn from one of my favorite fathers of the faith, Martin Luther. But before we get to the hymn, I'd like to talk for a moment about this man, Martin Luther, that God used to advance the kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Luther, of course, started his life out as a Roman Catholic, but was disturbed by many things he saw taking place within the Roman Catholic Church. Martin Luther observed, among other things, rampant greed, oppression, corruption, and blasphemy, which blasphemy is the act of speaking falsehoods about God that make him out to be a liar. Martin Luther is one of Christendom's greatest heroes because he stood against the zeitgeist of the day. Martin Luther was German, and so is the word zeitgeist, which to my knowledge does not have an English equivalent. Zeitgeist is a word that is used to describe the spirit of the age. Every age or period has a defining spirit or characteristic. For Luther, the zeitgeist was a Roman Catholic church steeped in corruption as priests taught the manipulative and unbiblical doctrine of indulgences. They did other things too, but indulgences was one of the big ones. Parishioners, basically the, the doctrine of indulgences worked like this. Parishioners were deceived into giving extra money to the church outside the normal tithe. To, and and they, would, they were deceived into giving this extra money so they could, quote, buy their relatives out of purgatory. The idea went that uh, the more money you gave to the church, the more likely your relatives were who, who were already dead that they would get out of purgatory. The lay people, the people who weren't uh, uh, trained theologians, they weren't allowed to even read the Bible, and so they had to rely entirely on the clergy to teach them God's Word. Since it was in the best financial interest of the Roman Catholic Church to require indulgences, the church grew fat with wealth while the people suffered. This was real oppression with actual victims. This was true institutional oppression. Martin Luther stood up against the prevailing thought of his day and one day courageously nailed his 95 theses to the church doors at Wittenberg. By going against the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, Martin Luther brought true freedom to a people who were really being oppressed. Martin Luther chose not to follow the crowd he chose not to do what everybody else was doing and instead took his stand courageously, not on the zeitgeist, but on scripture. You see, we as a people, we're imitators. If everybody's doing something, we're going to want to do it too. And Paul warns us in Colossians 2.8, he warns us against the zeitgeist. He says, quote, see to it, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You see, the zeitgeist will have its truth, its gospel, if you will, and it will be hollow. The zeitgeist will promise true deliverance, 
but it'll only deliver a false deception dreamt up by the father of lies. The zeitgeist is fickle and is no substitute for true salvation. You see, the zeitgeist is always changing because people are always changing and because sin is always changing and because the zeitgeist is so deceptive, every time a mass movement happens, every time everybody is doing something, and with social media, there's a new thing every week. There's a new thing to be outraged over every week. And then the next week, it all moves on to something else. So you have to look at the zeitgeist, and if it doesn't submit to Christ, if it doesn't submit to his word, then we must, as Christians, reject it as a false gospel. And so as we seek practical ways of living a life that is shaped by Trinitarian thought, similar to the way Martin Luther was shaped by Trinitarian thought, let's put three things in the forefront of our mind. Number one, our sin is primarily against God the Father. We are guilty. There's no question about that. But we're not guilty because we feel guilty. David was totally guilty in his sin with Bathsheba and with Uriah, but he didn't feel guilty at all. In fact, he didn't feel guilty until Nathan called out his sin and he was cut to the heart. And then David, so so David has real sin against real people, but while he's confessing his sin of adultery and murder, he confesses this to God in Psalm 51, and he says, against you, talking to God, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. So we need to remember that our sin is primarily against God the Father. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't confess our sins to others. We, we absolutely should, and we must if there is actual sin involved, but we must not forget that sin is ultimately against our Holy Father. So that was the bad news. Our sin being primarily against God the Father, that's the bad news. God is holy, we are not, and we've offended his holiness through our sin. Bad news. Point number two, though, is the good news. Our sin against God the Father was atoned for by Jesus Christ, God the Son. It was atoned for through, the work, through his work on the cross. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law of God. And then he took his righteousness and he imputed it. He gave it to his children. And when he imputed his righteousness to us, here's the good news. He set us free from the power of guilt and of sin. This is such a critical aspect of the gospel to not forget, especially in the zeitgeist that we all are living in. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed, regardless of the sin of your father or the sin of their fathers. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone. You've been set free from that sin. So don't walk in guilt or shame any longer. So number one is that our sin is primarily against God the Father, Number two is that our sin against God the Father was atoned for by Jesus Christ, God the Son. And number three is this. Our sin having been atoned for, we are given God the Holy Spirit to indwell us. Since God the Son has set us free from the power of sin against God the Father, God the Holy Spirit now gives us power to walk in that newness of life. Those of us in Christ 
should walk by the Spirit by living lives that reflect this freedom by our willingness to love and obey God and to love those around us who have been made in the image of God. We exhibit this love for others by standing up for truth, goodness, and beauty. We exhibit this love for others by confessing our own sin and not the sin of others. We also don't make up sins to confess. We confess true sins and we confess them truthfully. We exhibit this love for others by believing and speaking biblical truth in love and not by spreading sweet little easy-to-say lies. The bottom line is that our allegiance is to our God and Creator and to His people. When we sin, it is against Him. When we are forgiven, it's because of His mercy. When we walk in freedom, it's because of His grace, a double portion. This gospel is independent of any nation, tribe, or tongue. We are Christians first, period. Nothing should come before our unity as Christians. The only solidarity Christians should make primary is their union with the body of believers that comprise the bride of Christ, the church. The Father is providing His Son, the bridegroom, with a beautiful and spotless bride. That bride is us, and we must not make our allegiance to anyone or anything before our true husband. As believers in the one true God, we will be spending eternity together in harmony. So let's start practicing that harmony now. The gospel is grace and freedom for all who come. Let's treat our brothers and sisters in Christ as if they've actually been set free. As I said earlier, this week's hymn comes from Martin Luther. He wrote this in 1524, and this hymn was originally set to a chant that is hauntingly beautiful. It's, it's wonderful to sing. I, of course, have put this song to a new tune. That seems to be the thing I do. And this is an explicitly Trinitarian, Trinitarian song, and each stanza is dedicated to a different member of the Trinity. This song is really a sung creed. Just as we say the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, we sing this creed. We say the other ones, we sing this one. Now, with these kinds of creeds, all Christians believe what is said in them. That's the foundation for Christianity. So creedal songs such as these are wonderful because even if Christians disagree on many theological topics, and we certainly do, we all believe these things to be true, and we can gather around our true unity within songs and creeds like these because they lay the bedrock foundation for what Christianity is. So let me read each stanza and comment briefly as I go. The name of the hymn is, We All Believe in One True God. We all believe in one true God who created earth and heaven, the Father who to us in love hath the right of children given. He both soul and body feedeth, all we need he doth provide us. He through snares and perils leadeth, watching that no harm betide us. He careth for us day and night, all things are governed by his might. That's verse 1. 
As I said in the previous segment, Christians have solidarity first with one another. We are Christians first always. The blood of Christ takes precedence over the blood in our own veins. So what do we believe? We believe in the maker of heaven and earth, the one true God. This God is a father, and he calls us his children. He feeds our souls. He feeds our bodies. He provides us with everything we need. He leads us through the many snares and perils that abound in this temporal life. And he does this all while watching that no no kind of harm comes to us. And no harm happens to us. He's always taking care of us, and he is sovereignly in control of everything that happens in this world. He is a good father. That's verse 1. Verse 2 says this, We all believe in Jesus Christ, his own Son, our Lord, possessing, an equal Godhead throne in might, source of every grace and blessing, born of Mary, virgin mother, by the power of the Spirit, made true man, our elder brother, that the lost might life inherit, was crucified for sinful men and raised by God to life again. Christians believe in Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God the Father. Jesus possesses an equal Godhead. That is to say, while Christ submits to the Father and joyfully does so, he is fully God in his position and his power. Christ is the source of our joy and our happiness. And by the Spirit, by God the Holy Spirit, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. She was a virgin. The virgin birth is extremely important in Christian theology because we believe in the doctrine of original sin. Original sin is passed from our fathers to the children, to uh, to the sons and to the daughters. And so Mary was... Um, overshadowed by God the Holy Spirit, and was conceived while still a virgin, Jesus. So God was, so the, the Son, Jesus, was also fully man, and he was also fully God. But he was a true man. He is one of us. He is our elder brother. Think about that. All those claimed by Christ have the same big brother, Jesus. We all have the same big brother. That means we're all siblings, He was made fully man so that we, his lost sheep, might inherit eternal life. He was crucified for our sins while we were still sinful and unlovely. But he was then raised by God the Father to life again on the third day. All right, that's verse 2. Let's go to verse 3. This is the last verse. We all confess the Holy Ghost, whose sweet grace and comfort giveth. And with the Father and the Son in eternal glory liveth, who the church, his own creation, keeps in unity of spirit. Here forgiveness and salvation daily come through Jesus' merit. All flesh shall rise, and we shall be in bliss with God eternally. So we all believe in or confess the Holy Ghost, who gives us grace and comfort. Jesus actually calls him the comforter. Jesus in John 14 actually tells us that peace I give to you, not like the world gives you peace, but I'll give you real peace, and that peace will be the comforter. So the comforter lives with the Father and the Son in eternity, which means that he, like the Father and the Son, had no beginning and will have no end, the Alpha and the Omega. The church is held together in unity, by the power of the Holy Spirit's work in us. That's why I've been saying we choose one another 
because we are all a part of the same body. Our solidarity, again, is with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Within the church, there is forgiveness and salvation because of the merit or the work of Christ. One day, all men, women, boys and girls, literally all flesh, shall rise for the final judgment. And for those found in Christ, we will have bliss with God forever. I will be going on an extended break as we are entering ordinary time on the church calendar. As I said in the beginning, ordinary time refers to the time that is marked by ordinal numbers. One, two, three, four, five, etc. Trinity Sunday is actually the first Sunday after Pentecost. We will have 19 more Sundays after Pentecost before we get to our next church holiday, which is Reformation Day. And then the week after will be All Saints Day. I will for sure produce an episode for All Saints Day and probably will for Reformation Day as well. I have some time to think about it, though, as either of those days won't be here until the end of October. And if I might make a suggestion before I leave you, it would be to download the lectionary in the show notes so you can continue to read the biblical passages during this beautifully ordinary time. Anyways, that wraps up our episode on the Trinity. I hope you all have a wonderful Trinity Sunday, and I hope you enjoy a new setting of Martin Luther's Trinitarian masterpiece, We All Believe in One True God. We'll see you all in October. We all believe in one true God who created earth and heaven, the Father who Daily. Come.
come through Jesus' merit, all flesh shall rise and we shall be in bliss with God eternal.